0: Welcome to the Enterprise GTM Podcast, hosted by Tim Zonka and Vidya Raman. Each episode takes a deep dive into how to successfully maneuver the unique dynamics of enterprise go-to-market, while candidly discussing successful approaches, pitfalls, and failures alike. Our guests are seasoned company founders, GTM execs, technology buyers, and end-users. Please note that the views expressed by individuals in these podcasts are not to be treated as investment advice. They are also not representing the views of their employers, current or previous.
1: I'm excited to share with you our guest today, DJ Sampot. He was the founder, CEO of Armor Blocks. He sold that to Cisco earlier this year. ArmorBlocks was a cybersecurity startup, which built the world's first natural language understanding platform to intelligently detect, alert, and protect against identity-related attacks and data loss. DJ is the quintessential engineer turned CEO. He's got a PhD in computer engineering, started his career as a software engineer before starting ArmorBlocks. I'm sure there is much that founders who are walking similar career paths can learn from him. And so without much further ado, let's welcome DJ Sampath. DJ, it's great to have you here.
2: Thanks so much, Tim. super excited to be here and, uh, and talking to you, and NVIDIA.
1: Well, maybe just start out, tell us a little bit about your founding journey. You know, you worked at startups, large enterprises before starting Armour Blocks. How'd that prepare you for some of the things that you had in store for you? And especially what was the hardest part about transitioning to a CEO? role?
2: I think one of the things, when I look back, one of the decisions that I made was to join a startup as one of the earliest of employees. When you think about the company that I was at before, it was called Stackwalks. And Stackwalks was something where the two people that founded it were just, there wasn't even a name of the company that was in place. And we would sit down and ideate, like, you know, in my previous offices, we would sit together, we would talk about like different things. At that point, I was at Deutsche Telekom Labs. And I think it was a very scary thing. It was a scary moment. As you think about like, hey, I'm about to leave a very comfortable job pays me a a ton of cash to like go into this unknown, uncertain environment and sort of building something and dedicating your lives to sort of doing that. And there were a lot of opinions around this, right? Like, hey, you know, you want to pick founders that have built this before, serial entrepreneurs and like a ton of different opinions come in at that point. You Google search what Y Combinator talks about from an equity perspective, you know, as you join, all of those things. Can I just
3: tell you that founders are not the only ones who do that?
2: That's a great point. You're right. So for me personally, you know, the thing that really made the difference was like to say, hey, I want to go to a startup in a very early stage and I want to be able to be part of that thing. And, uh, and for all practical purposes, I was part of that founding narrative of like, hey, what are we going to go out and build? How are we going to do this? And seeing that from soup to nuts as an engineer was a massive experience, which fundamentally changed how I thought about a lot of, a lot of mm-hmm. things, right? So, in that journey, I was able to go from being the, the guy that did Git in it on the repository and started the GitHub, the very first lines of code that were checked in, and all the way to like managing, recruiting, building the team, and managing a, a team of about 50 plus engineers. And so, I think that's a journey that I would recommend to anybody that's sort of thinking about it. That's a right at that cusp, you know, trying to figure out, hey, what should I do? How do I go start my own startup? Take a little bit of a detour, spend a little bit of time at like, you know, one of the startups at the earliest stage get a feel for it. And I think that to me was like paramount in sort of thinking about the next step. And as I started thinking about what I wanted to do next, I think it was all of those experiences, having amazing mentors that sort of showed me the path along the way was fundamentally instrumental in me saying, okay, you know what? I think I understand this. I think I know what it takes to sort of get the startup up and running from scratch and let me go do that. So I think that's in some way an abridged version of my journey, you know, getting from a software engineer to being a CEO. You also had a a secondary a segue question. You'd asked me about what about being a CEO was hard. Yeah, just what was the hardest part of that transition for you? I think there's a there are a lot of things that you don't know unless you have founded a company. I'll now say the opposite of what I just told you. That it's important to take the detour and to learn all of those things. But you still, until you become a founder CEO, you still have a large amount of knowledge gaps about all the way from like incorporating a company, going from like, okay, wait a minute, what does the incorporation charter look like? Why should you incorporate it in Delaware to like regulatory requirements when you start hiring people in a distributed fashion? Like, oh, wait a minute, you have to adhere to like laws inside of like each and every single one of the states. You know, it's like each state has its different rules and regulations and when you go beyond the United States and you start hiring people out of other countries, you gotta adhere to the laws over there. There are so many details that are, Part of that fabric, you know, when you start thinking about building your own company. And again, on the go to market side, you have to start thinking about specifically, like, how do I get my first customer? You know, you, your, your gears mm-hmm. don't go the same way when, when you are an early engineer in a startup because you're transitioning from like just writing code and making sure that that thing works. And then at the end of the day, you sort of like, you check out, you're like, hey, I'm going to watch some Netflix, I'm going to hang out with the kids, I'm going to, you know, go to bed. When you become the CEO of a startup, there is no off button. You're still like, you know, you're still hanging out with your kids. You're still like, you know, putting them to bed. But as you're doing that, there's a thread that's not being shut down inside of your head that goes, wait, tomorrow morning, I got to pitch it this way. Or maybe this is the angle. Yeah. Here's how I'm going to hire my next salesperson. Here's what that's going to look like. It never turns off. So I think to me personally, that was a big shift in terms of making that transition from being an engineer to, to being a CEO.
3: DJ, that explains why I never saw you outside of your house during the year and a half or so that we were neighbors because you had no off button as a CEO. So that's also a good segue into actually what you touched upon, which is, you know, especially becoming a CEO, starting your career as an engineer and then transitioning into a CEO is something a lot of founders do that they aspire to do. And one of the things I've noticed is that they often fall into the trap of, over-indexing in building product as opposed to selling it. So you already alluded to it. So can you maybe give our founders listening to this podcast some super tactical advice as to how to overcome the trap? Really no strategy, but really very, very tactical. How do you almost sometimes maybe have to brainwash yourself perhaps, but how do you get yourself to, to overcome that trap? What did you do?
2: The first thing I would say, a contrarian belief, I think I would like to state is that. If an engineer comes to you and says, hey, I don't know how to sell, they're flat out lying. I think they have to understand that they've been selling since they were born. Like, you know, when they wanted that extra candy or when they wanted to watch some extra cartoon time, when they were kids, they have been finding ways of being able to convince others how their perspective is right. It happens when you write code. It happens when you check in your code and negotiating a PR. You're going through every facet of what you have to do when you sell a product. So I think you have to first of all change that perspective that this is fundamentally different from writing code. Yes, I mean, you know, while that may be true, developers and coders and engineers have been doing have been selling for a long long time before they go through their first actual sale of their product. So, I think the important piece to recognize is that is to sort of own it first as opposed to having this mental block of saying, "Hey, I'm not a salesperson." Everybody is a salesperson, I think, and once you accept that, things start to change, right? When you build the very first product, let's call it the Hello World program in a brand new thing, you know, you are turning around and showing somebody as an engineer, you say, hey, look, Hello World is working. You're selling right there, you're showing them a demo. You said, hey, you know, this thing that I wrote, it got compiled, it ran, and it now prints Hello World on this, on this LED screen, you know, that's which, which works. Right there is the tight loop you want to start building upon, right? You start to think about, hey, how can I show this to somebody that this piece of code that I wrote is working? That's your atomic building block. You, you build on top of that. The next thing is that you know, you've got to use the same skills to convince investors to say, hey, I built this prototype. Here's how this is working. The next thing you do is you turn around and you convince your next employee to come on board. You're selling right now saying, here's the vision for what I have, but here's this first piece of code that already works. See, And I've done this before, and I know how to do this more. And the same thing applies to when you turn to a customer, a prospective customer, you sit down and you say, hey, listen, check this out. These are the problems that you're facing today. And I have seen that. I've been in your shoes. And here's what I have gone ahead and built something for you that might take that pain point away from you. And so it's the natural segue to like officially going out and selling. So once you couch it in that perspective, I think it becomes a lot easier for engineers to start making that transition. Because for the first few years, the person that's going to be getting out there and selling inside of a startup is going to be the founder CEO. And we know historically, when we look back, a lot of technical engineers have become massively successful. They've become very successful founders and they managed to take the companies and you know have billion-dollar-plus outcomes because they understood that they're solving a very valuable pain point, and they know how to articulate it in a meaningful way that people could understand it. So... That would be the tactical advice that I give, you know, change of mindset saying that, hey, I've been selling and I know how to sell. And let me just hone my skills.
3: 100 percent. You put it very beautifully, broke it down into very progressive steps that people can think of. And also, I love the mental hack that you started off with, which is that, you know, if someone says I cannot sell or I have not sold, that is a lie. Just tell yourself you're lying to yourself. I love that starting point. So continuing down that thread of common traps that technical founders fall into. Especially at the earliest stages, some founders fall into the trap of, you know, continuing to build, 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 because in their mind, the MVP, the minimum viable product is not done yet. So curious to hear from you, how had you come to the conclusion as to what done looks like? And as far as MVP is concerned, was it based more on your own perspective on the product and the technology and the problem you wanted to solve? Or was it purely based on customer feedback? Maybe it's a combination, but let me just throw
2: it out to you. Vidya, this is a, it's a nerve. You touched a nerve right there. I think figuring out when something is perfect, when something is good to go, is the hardest thing to do. It's not easy. And I think it takes a tremendous amount of discipline to sort of like constantly check and validate what you're building is meeting the requirements of the market. Everybody's heard of the stories of like how a lot of the successful companies that we're a part of today had an MVP that was nothing but a, you know, a drawing on a napkin. I still remember I think, the famous stories of, uh, I think it's of uh, Dropbox, right? When the guys got together, they basically just had a mock implementation of like, what Dropbox could look and feel like up until like, the first hundred users you know, got to a point of them signing up for it because they just saw a video demo of what it could be, which is basically the modern version would be like, hey, just put a Figma up on a website and put a sign up button and see how many people sign up for it, right? And that in itself tells you that hey, there's a tremendous demand for something. So that's on the one end of that spectrum, and the other end of the spectrum is sort of like you know beautifully well designed, completely good to go product. And we've known that you know sometimes those things don't really take off. You might have spent like years and years of making a magical leap pun intended of a product which never sees the light of day, right? And so, so I think the answer lies in your unique understanding of the market. There's a reason why. You have a unique insight. You come into this whole, hey, I want to start a company because I have this unconventional, unusual, unique insight that I think will really, really resonate. And you sort of have to stay very close to that part of it. As much as everybody's going to come in and say, I want X, I want Y, maybe you should think about it as Z. There'll be a ton of opinions that come along the way, but sort of staying close to your true insight of why you started the company and why you believed that this was actually a pain point and getting the data points that tell you that, hey, the pain point can get resolved if you got to a certain distance is really what is going to help you recognize, have you arrived at some of those things? Now, let me make it more concrete, right? I think one of the best examples we had, you know, when we started out building the email security part of the product, we thought, hey, we, we're going to need to do you know, a certain amount of features before this product can be useful. And then we said, okay, for customers to really understand like what we're building is meaningful, We have to use the state of the art natural language processing algorithms to be able to make sense of this. And we spent a good amount of time doing that. When we went and started talking to our customers and we we had tons of these conversations, one of the big things they came back with was saying it was a very simple thing that they really needed at the end of the day, which was hey, I have this problem where when I have a mail that I receive and I'm not sure if it is in fact a legitimate email or whether it's suspicious, I want to be able to ask somebody about this. Like, hey, is this really. A legitimate email. And that was the biggest pain point that they wanted to solve for, sort of asking somebody if I could just press a button and that button told me automatically that mail's fine, everything looks good, you can respond to that. That was enough for a lot of customers. And so we had to go back to the drawing board and say, hey, listen, we built all of these 15 different features. This one feature that we have in between those 15 features is really what's resonating. So let's stop working on 14 other things. Let's mm-hmm. just focus on this one thing and make sure that this one thing becomes much, much better. So in, in some ways, I think mm-hmm. you can go down the rabbit hole of deep, yeah. you know, the feature after feature. But I think what's important is to test it constantly with the market saying, hey, did you find this feature useful? If you're building a consumer product, it's a lot mm-hmm. easier. You can quickly get somebody to try it out. But when you're working with enterprises, it becomes that much harder to like get back to a customer, get their attention and say, hey, test this out and tell me whether this is meaningful or not. So, yes, it can be hard. but doing that is worth its weight
3: in gold. Got it. That makes a ton of sense, DJ. I mean, clearly you started with a unique insight and you had a certain idea as to what customers would value and value very much. But then when you started putting it out in front of customers and you had your initial idea might have been 14 different features that were important, but without putting it out and sharing it with customers in some way, shape or form, be it a napkin or a prototype in some other way, shape or form, You wouldn't have been able to figure out that that one thing out of the 14. So it sounds like it's definitely important to have as many intermediate validation points you can have, validation and invalidation, so that you're not trying to have like this big bang. Okay, here's my MVP and now we can we can launch. And then you also touched upon like how when you started Armor Blocks was not the only or or the first email security solution. Granted. I'm sure it is was the most innovative and effective one when it launched. So I'm sure you must have heard several objections coming from prospective customers, from people who had seen other vendors, particularly startups, pitch them all kinds of things but didn't deliver. So what advice can you give founders who are trying to disrupt or enter into an existing market and who I'm sure are hearing similar objections? I mean, there is some aspect of grit and perseverance and and all of that. How do you, like, I don't know if there are mental hacks or otherwise, how you, or was it quantity, the number of touch points that you had? How did you go about overcoming those objections?
2: I think one of the key things as an entrepreneur is to have a tremendous amount of conviction, what you are setting out to do, right? I think without that, you shouldn't be in the business of trying to build something or build a startup, right? Because you're not convinced yourself that what you're doing is the right set of things. I think at the core of it, that conviction is sort of what covers the next set of steps that you just talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're going to hear a lot of no's. You're going to hear no's from investors. You're going to hear no's from customers. That, and there are going to be a, a million reasons why they're going to say no. They're going to say no because, hey, hang on a second. I don't have this problem. Or they don't believe they have this problem. And then mm-hmm. you know, they're going to go through like a different set of things. They, you know, they do have this problem, but your company's not, you know, it's too early. And then there are going to be situations where, again, and rightfully so, customers are going to be, you know, they're going to want things that are very stable. They don't have to sit down and work through like a company that gets acquired. Case in point, I think it was uh, it was hard for a few customers to sort of like make that transition as an acquisition happens. I think a lot of it goes behind those no's and being able to unpack the no's is very, very important, right? When you hear a no, there are two ways to go about it, right? You basically hear the no and you keep going, you, you press hard, and you say, no, I heard you, no, but I'm going to keep going forward faster. And then there's the intelligent way of being able to process the notes. Like, hey, why did you say no? And start putting together a state machine that says, and as an engineer, one of the first things you go back to is, like, say, hey, I'm going to draw this back up. Here are 50 people that said no, and this person said no because of this reason. And again, a very underrated and well-understood skill is uh, you know, the ability to take down notes. You talk to a customer, you may not be able to take down notes when you're doing a live interview because a lot of times you're expected to fully engage with them, but then when you finish that meeting, you come back and you start you take down the notes where it says, "Okay, here are the objections that I heard." When you start coming back and collecting them, you will almost always start to see the patterns. Here are the number one reasons why they, you know a customer's saying no or the customer's saying they're not interested, and then you unpack you know from there, you start to drive down okay maybe you know it, it's classical one-on-one objection handling, right? You're gonna hear objections and here's how you counter the objection. So then you start to systematically build, here are my, whenever I hear this, I'm gonna say this thing because I've had success with this. And until you have success, you're gonna try out a whole bunch of different things. You should have a game plan to say, when I hear the no because you guys are a small startup, you then lean on, here are the angel investors, here are my investors which have an amazing pedigree, here's my team that comes from all of these places that come out and have done amazing things before. Here's my track record of my people. So that's basically proving by reference. If you hear a no because I already have a contract with this customer, then you say, okay, you try to start understanding, okay, this is an objection handling where I have to competitively position our new offering against what's in the market. When I hear competitor X, I have to respond with this. When I hear competitor Y, I got to respond with this. So you systematically, you break down the reasons why you're receiving your no's. And then there could be reasons why your product is not the right fit. To it. So it sort of naturally lends itself to a segmentation problem where, you know, which are the customers that are starting to say yes or are on the fence? And how do you convince them? So you walk away from the very strong no's where you really cannot unstick them to like the ones that are on the fence or starting to say yes. And then you identify, hey, who are the other customers that resemble the ones that just said yes? And then you start knocking on their doors to see, can you systematically increase the number of yes that you're getting from all of these folks? And if you can't do that, that's your first, your ideal customer profile is starting to emerge because these are the ones that are starting to say yes to the things that you are talking about. So that's sort of how I thought about it. And I think hopefully that's, that's helpful.
1: Yeah. What about, you know, you mentioned a little bit ago something along the lines of going through the process and, you know, regardless if it's learning more about the, you know, what the no's mean or you kind of just feedback on the product. You said a phrase, something like, you know, started to get enterprise customers. So I'm curious to hear more about that. Tell us some of the lessons learned around, you know, the shift of enterprise, engaging with enterprises, the sales cycle, like what works, what'd you watch
2: out for? Setting to the enterprises in itself is a full chapter. It's like a, you know, we could talk about, you know, this for the next four hours. But I think, I think the, the very first thing is that you have to understand that enterprises are constantly inundated with like a number of different solutions. Like every single startup there, you know, again, just, you know, focusing on cybersecurity, there are like 4,200, 4,500 startups out there at any given point in time. If you go to the RSA show floor, yeah. it is filled with startups that, you know, you wonder, like, hang on a second. This is like, you know, how do you get signal out of this, this noise? And so the customers typically Who
3: funded them?
2: <laughs> I know. <laughs> exactly. <right? laughs> It's a thing where the enterprise, enterprise customers, whether it's a CISO or a CIO, they constantly have to sort of stay at the edge of innovation because they know that the next best thing is going to come from a startup. You know, they understand that they're not, they're very, very clever, very capable. But at the same time, they have a certain amount of risk appetite to like bringing in something new into their stack and that failing or that not working for them. So I think the most important thing is to have that empathy when you go into that conversation, recognizing that part of their stack was a startup at some point in time. And they became really big, but at the same time, recognizing that they may not work well with you. So you have to sort of go past the narratives. You have to understand who they are as a person. What are they trying to accomplish? Classically, you would notice this in like the best salespeople, best account executives that you end up hiring are people that can build a personal relationship and a rapport with the customer that they're trying to sell to. You yeah. know, it's human selling to humans. It's not you can i mean yes there's a lot of automation a lot of intelligence a lot of machine involved in the process but at the end of the day when you sit right across i think that's the number one rule of like enterprise selling is to sit down with your prospective customer understand that hey this is what you're selling is that valuable and when they start saying yeah it's valuable but i i need this this and this that's gold you know you you sit down you triangulate it with like 15 other conversations that you've had you come back to your product team and you go I have heard this common theme. If we were yeah. to like build this one thing, I think enterprises will start coming to us. Have you ever had to say no to an enterprise? Like I heard you say like, hey, if it's the right
1: fit. And so sometimes it's you see that large check at the end of a process, but it's not always the right customer.
2: So have, have you run into that? You know, the, the, the obvious answer that you hear is that you say no if it doesn't fit your product. Like if, if that customer is not your ideal customer profile, you say no. But in real world, it's <laughs> easier said than done, right? Yeah. I'll give you an example. It's, it's end of the quarter. You've got a board meeting coming up in like four weeks. Your board's made it very clear that, you know, for you to be able to go out and execute on your next fundraise, you need to have hit like X amount of revenue and X amount of growth. And you're looking at your, your SaaS metrics dashboard. Your LTV to CAC is starting to, you know, not look quite right. You're looking at all of your ratios. You want to make sure that they are looking just right for you to be able to go execute on that. Mm-hmm. And you've got to find that horizon because you've only got about twelve months in the gas tax. So this is time to race. So when you look at all of those situations, you may not have the luxury to say, "Oh, I'm going to say no to that two million dollar check that's going to come in," which is basically you know a ten million dollar LTV for my my whole respective app. But I do have to build like four different features to be able to do that. It'll be a distraction for my team. So those are hard calls, and you know, yeah. and and you have to make them. And I think even if you read the hard things about hot things, you know. They had to go out and build an entirely different company to sort of, you know, survive. So, you know, a couple of features, why not? You know, you're going to do that.
1: That's great. I, it, is, it is a tension. I love how you're like, you know, the whole easier said than done thing in that case is, is surely a, something that's, that's true. What about partnerships? Was that critical for the go-to-market motion? And, and when did you start adding them?
2: I think timing is very important for partnerships, right? I think you do it too early, it's mean but if you don't recognize the value of that and you take too long to sort of build the right types of relationships, I think you're going to find that the oxygen is sucked out by your competitors. One of the classic phenomena is that when you when you have a new idea, you have a white space that you're going after, a lot of times what's going to happen is you're going to start to see a lot of clones emerge out of the woodwork because you're talking about your ideas and it may not be necessarily people copying your idea or anything at all, but it's just that there are other people that are perhaps having the same perspective you know, when they're going into the market, right? And it's it's likely that if you're seeing the pain point, there are at least 15 others or 30 others that are seeing the same pain point themselves. So I think what ends up happening in that case is that if you don't build the right types of partnerships, whether it's channel relationships, whether it is with other larger companies that have a massive distribution that's out there, it's important to sort of like find the right people in each and every single one of those and build those relationships. And you have to start that from day zero. You're constantly building relationships with other CEOs. you're building relationships with other larger companies, corporate teams, you're building relationships with channel partners from a distribution perspective, whether it's a VAR or reseller or marketplaces, you're going to have to do that as part of your job as a CEO to make sure you recognize which partnerships are necessary and when to turn them on. I think when I talk about timing, it's about, you know, trying to do an Amazon marketplace or a Google marketplace before you are ready to service customers that might potentially show up i think that's not helpful classic mistake yeah Uh, yeah, it's a mistake you know you don't you don't want to do that too early same thing with channel partners you know channels is not going to come out and promote your product very aggressively unless you've had some marquee wins because when they think about their reputation about how they go to their clients and and pitch a product they want to have the same type of proof points that say hey here's this customer uses them this this big fortune 100 customer uses them or this fortune 10 uses Mm -hmm. them And that snowballs into more and more deals for themselves. So I think timing is very important in terms of building them, and you have to be at the right maturity levels to be able to turn on and activate each one of those partnerships.
3: Those are great points, DJ. I mean, you know, especially when you mentioned about partnerships, it again reminded me of the point that you made earlier about making sure that we understand the humans behind this, whether they are partners or customers, it is still a human. And I have to say, I haven't yet come across a startup pitching an idea for Machines automatically selling to machines, but maybe that'll happen. But let's switch topics to the topic of the season, if you will, which is AI. So at Armor Blocks, you were a pioneer in the early adoption of AI for real-world and very business critical use cases. Could you tell us a little bit about how you used NLP and then maybe you can also then segue into large language models and how that might have changed things for you and your end customers?
2: Absolutely. I think, I think it, it, it all started over a beer, right? I think one of the things that I like to talk about is luck plays a huge role in terms of how you stumble upon the right types of ideas, the right types of people, right circumstances. And one of the fortunate life decisions is to be in the Bay Area. It's a melting pot of people that come together that are working on some cool things. And this is really a casual conversation with my co founder and uh, one of his colleagues and his classmates from his undergrad days. And, and this person was talking about how they're seeing SOTA results in some experiments that they were doing. I didn't know what SOTA meant at that point. I was like, no, what are you even talking about? Turns out it stands for state of the art and therefore that's SOTA, soda results in like, and it was a paper about transformers. I mean, I instantly visualized, oh, we're gonna now talk about robots and stuff. And so it was one of those very first follow-on papers after the, the seminal transformer paper that came out that talked about a new architecture to do you know deep learning. And so very quickly we went back and we started looking at it and we we're like hang on a second this is really fascinating you know we've always talked about semantic search the semantic web but this is sort of a very different way to think about this and I think that was sort of our, our inflection point for us to be able to think about hey can we bring this into the cybersecurity world where a lot of what we're trying to solve for is being able to understand you know bring natural language understanding to the entire cybersecurity stack is sort of what people are looking to solve, whether it is alert fatigue or whether it is phishing attacks, whether it is managing socks. I think all of these things were sort of tied together. So we said, okay, let's play around with this a little bit more. Our first use case when we interviewed a lot of customers was, hey, we have this phishing attack and this turned into something a lot bigger. It turned into a lateral movement. It turned into this type of CNC attack and so on and so forth. That sort of like made us realize, okay, let's go solve this one pain point using the models that we're trying to build, using transformer models. And right then we started like, you know, looking at labeling data, which is a huge, huge problem. Like, Where do I go get data set for emails where we can start labeling this in an effective manner? So it's a hard problem unless you start reading emails. And we knew that inside of our ecosystem, there were others that were reading all of the emails and we were coming from a security and privacy world. We were like, hey, there's no way we could do that. right? We had to find ways of being able to work with synthetic data to be able to do this thing. So we took a little bit of a circuitous route and trying to build models. And we were collaborating at that point. OpenAI was a lot more easier to work with and they were really open and it was easier <laughs> to get uh, data back and forth. And, that. and we did some really good collaborative work at that point. And as the very first transformer model was coming out, the GPT 1.0, which is in some ways one of the, the first LLMs that were out there, we were leveraging that to be able to understand what's going on inside of emails. Bird just came out from Google as well at that point. And as a foundation model in some ways. And so we started leveraging some parts of BERT. We started building our own version of model from the ground up based off of the customers that we're connecting to and the data that we're getting. And you know, we had the ability to sort of just pick like the emails that were malicious and using those malicious emails, we generated a lot of synthetic data, like other malicious emails, and used mm-hmm. that to build uh, an encoder decoder that could effectively do the right types of inferences. And it got really wild very fast. Like I think... We were working with these things where we were starting to see these patterns and we were convinced at that point that the world's going to change. And that's why we were working on this mission to say, okay, can we build this in such a way that we still get 70 plus percent on gross margins because there's only so much of VC money you can burn, right? You got to start becoming smarter about how you build a business.
3: And And (laughs) GPUs.
2: That's right. And so so we started getting smarter about how we were building the infrastructure, deploying these models appropriately and sort of managing all of that. And all of a sudden things started getting really better. I think it's a it's a model with AI where it's garbage for a long time, right? It's garbage, 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 garbage. And all of a sudden it's like, holy crap, like it's starting to work really well. And I think this is not something that people understand unless they've you've spent time, you know, trying to build and work with these models from scratch, right? And for us, we had that big aha moment in like you know, late 2019, early 2020. And that caused us to be able to like build our customer base very, very quickly from that point on. But we were still going into each of those conversations, explaining to customers, saying, hey, there's a big movement happening. In fact, if you go back to like some of our oldest customers in 2019 or 2020, we were pitching to them about this whole concept called Transformers. And their eyes would glaze over until uh, November of last year when like ChatGPT came out. Yeah. And the number of inbounds that we got saying, oh, my God, DJ, this is what you were talking about two years ago or three years <laughs> ago. In some ways, it was very fulfilling to sort of see that happen. But in the, on the flip side of it, it's like, I'm like, I told you so. I, I, I would risk the temptation to say it, but it's like, I told you that this is going to happen and that's what we built for you. But no, I think it's been, a, it's been an amazing ride looking at what's happening in the AI, the inflection point that's happening and I'm tremendously excited about what's about to happen as well. I think as we sort of see that shift, people are going to just take things off the shelf, LLMs off the shelf and start to build some amazing experiences. You don't have to build something from scratch right now because there's so many awesome options available. So yeah, exciting
3: times. It's fascinating. Clearly, we're standing on the shoulders of giants and include open AI, maybe more close these days, but still, they can take some credit too. So domain-specific models, or is that not something that you think is going to be important, especially in security?
2: I think what's going to happen is largely, you're going to see a huge amount of attention being focused on Smaller models that solve specific pain points. Um, I think you're, you know, that's going to, it's bound to happen because when you think about what the LLM solve for us, they offered you the ability to sort of explain, you know, use language, draw upon like different weights that are back there to explain something complex in a simple fashion, right? I think when you start thinking about, hey, how do we use this model in a more meaningful way, I think you're going to start to see smaller models that are, you know, that have much lesser latencies, smaller models that have the ability to sort of, not having to provide so much information inside of a context window, not over relying on rags, you're gonna start to see that become the de facto for niche applications. And I think there are going to be lots of these small models that are talking to each other, but there's still a place for larger and larger models because if you think about the universe of expressions, especially when it comes to a consumer side of the house, where there are end users finally consuming a, a product, the large language models are still, they have a massive amounts of relevance because you cannot accomplish everything for everybody with small models. I think there's going to be a world where both of these exist, coexist just fine. But I think there's not enough work that's gone into small models, and you're going to start to see that happen in the next few years.
3: Got it. Thank you so much, DJ. This was absolutely amazing. So many very, very valuable nuggets that you had shared. Thank you very much for your time here. Really enjoyed the conversation.
2: Of course. Thank you for having me on, and I appreciate it. And it was a great talking to you both.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Enterprise GTM Podcast. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on your favorite podcast platform so we can continue to help enterprise founders thrive.